Let's go ahead and open uh, the Bibles to 1 Peter. Uh, we're going to be starting going through 1 Peter. It's really neat in God's sovereignty that 1 Peter is following the book of, of Philippians. And I don't think I really uh, realized how similar these books were until I started studying them. And there are themes that are going to be challenging to us and that I think will continue uh, to work in us what God has started at, as we're going through the book of Philippians during the past year. Really, these, these, these books are really written very close to one another, although to a very different audience, and there are some common themes. We're, we're going to go ahead and get started this morning. I'll read uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Peter, I hope I don't say Paul. I'm going to say Paul again and again, I think. Peter, poor Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. May the Lord bless his reading of the word as we... Uh, get into First Peter together. You can see from your outline there this, this morning, it's a simple outline. Introductions to books, you always battle. Is it too much teaching versus too much preaching? This is going to be a teaching-heavy morning because there's a whole lot I want us to get on the same page about uh, before we're getting in, into First Peter. You can see from your outline, we're going to talk about the author of First Peter. Not surprisingly, is Peter. The audience of First Peter, the purpose of First Peter, and the timeliness of First Peter. Speaking of the timeliness of 1 Peter, last night, following the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, Robert Redford published on the Sundance website, he's part of uh, uh, the uh, uh, originator of the Sundance Film Festival, he put, published on the Sundance website, and I don't know if any of you saw this, a brief statement about big things. I'm not, not going to take a lot of time reading the whole thing, but here's how he starts off. Tonight... And he, he never specifically says it is in response to, to Kavanaugh being nominated. But tonight, for the first time I can remember, I feel out of place in the country I was born into and the citizenship I've loved my whole life. For weeks, I've watched with sadness as our civil servants have failed us, turning toward bigotry, mean-spiritedness, and mockery as the now normal tools of the trade. Now, no matter what you think about that comment, there's an interesting phrase he says, and really I'm surprised it took him his whole life to feel out of place in the country. He says, but he felt out of place in the country I was born into and the citizenship I've loved my whole life. My question for you is, do you feel out of place in the country you were born into? Now that might be a difficult question for some of us, as many of you were not actually born in this country. So you can think about this country. You can think about the country you were born into. It applies to all of them. Do you feel out of place in this country? Do you feel out of place where you're a citizen? A Christian should feel out of place in the United States of America. Regardless of whether the Republicans or the Democrats have the majority. A Christian should feel out of place in Canada, out of place in Mexico, out of place in the Czech Republic, out of place in Malaysia. And that's why the book of 1 Peter was written. Because we are those, as chapter 1, verse 1 says, to those who reside as aliens. We are by new birth, and he talks about that in, 
in chapter 1, how we have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. By new birth, we are those who are out of place in our own country. Various commentaries have speculated that 1 Peter has been seldom preached in recent years and, and little studied because, or at least by the Western church, because the church has gone through so little suffering. And it's true that 1 Peter is a book addressing a church that has gone through a lot of suffering. Those same commentaries that speculate why 1 Peter is not on the uh, uh, top list of books that are most often preached retell, and it's anecdotal evidence, that 1 Peter is particularly dear to saints in persecuted countries. And it's true that 1 Peter has a lot to say about suffering. It's a central theme of the book. But 1 Peter is primarily about our living as strangers, about our residing as aliens, as our being sojourners on this earth, is living as God's people in a world in which we are distinguished, we are set apart by our obedience to Jesus Christ. It's about us as God's people persevering as we are waiting for the return of Christ. It's not just about suffering. So as we look at this overview of 1 Peter, let's begin looking at the author, and of course is Peter. Peter, first verse starts off, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle was a delegate, and here we have a delegate who has, or an envoy, that has an extraordinary status. So much so that this is an apostle of Jesus Christ. There's, there's, there's no other phrase like that. It's not elders of Jesus Christ or pastors of Jesus Christ. Apostles of Jesus Christ were uniquely sent by Jesus Christ, uniquely set apart to speak divine, authoritatively, the words of God. Now, there's so much more I'd like to give. I'm going to try to see how much time I have to give a survey of Peter's life. I'm going to try to do it once here. But I would encourage you to read through one of the Gospels, like Matthew or Luke, and then read through the book of Acts, at least the first 15 chapters, to get a sense of Peter's life. Because I think that the more you read about Peter's life, and the more you go back and forth between 1 Peter, um, the, the more you'll be impacted by who's writing this book. Now, we know about Peter. He's the most well-known apostle probably besides Paul, right? And we could always wonder why Peter plays second fiddle to Paul. It could be because simply practically, Paul wrote, wrote way more of, of the New Testament. So he spent a lot more time with Paul. But I kind of wonder too, if there's an, an imperfection about Peter that just makes him a little less heroic, right? I mean, Paul had all these horrible sins before getting saved. He was persecuting the church, but then afterwards, he just excels. Peter, as we know and we can relate to, was a little bit of a mess. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't powerfully transform Peter, or that there wasn't parts about Peter that we admire uh, even, even before Pentecost. We, we know that Peter was married. He was a fisherman by trade who is called by Jesus to be a fisher of men. There was that one time when he saw Jesus' miraculous catch of fish in Luke 5.8. When Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And that's a little bit of Peter that we love. He has these emotional reactions to who Jesus is. He falls at his feet. He understands and says, Get away from me, Lord. I can't be in your presence. We love how Peter walked on water, but seeing the wind, it says in Matthew 14, 30, he became frightened, beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. I think that's a good picture of Peter. Incredible faith. And then he loses it, but then he cries out, Lord, save me. Peter both confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God. And then verses later, rebuked Jesus for saying that he would die. In that same passage, he's called by Jesus the rock on which the church would be built. And then he's called by Jesus a few verses later, Satan, and a stumbling block. That's Peter. 
Peter saw the glory of Christ revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he wants to build some tents. But Peter left everything to follow Christ. Matthew 19, 27, Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. He's willing to die for Jesus. John 13, 37, Lord, why can't I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Profess his loyalty to Christ in Matthew 26, verse 33. Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. But then, verses later, he fell asleep after Jesus begged him, I don't want to say begged, had said his soul was deeply grieved, so please watch. So what does Peter do? He falls asleep. And then, when the guards come to arrest Jesus, Peter's ready to throw down. He grabs his sword and cuts off the slave's ear. Hours later, cursed and swore that he didn't know Jesus, only to then leave weeping, remembering that that's exactly what Jesus predicted would happen. He eagerly ran to the tomb to see if it was true that Jesus' body was missing. Even after seeing the resurrected Jesus once, he was so eager to see him again that when Jesus was on the shore, and when the disciples say, hey, look, it's Jesus, Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord. He put his outer garment on and threw himself into the sea. He can't wait for the boat to get to land. He wants to go see Jesus. So I just, I love this picture of Peter, of this emotional man, a loyal man, but an imperfect man. In John 21, 15 to 17, Jesus three times asked Peter if he loves him. And then Peter, affirming he did, was told to care for a sheep. And that's really what we see going on in this letter in 1 Peter. 30 years later, Peter still faithfully feeding Christ's sheep. He preached with power at Pentecost in Acts 2, verse 14. Peter, taking stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared, this is only 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead approximately, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. If we go to Acts 2, verses 38 to 39, we see the kind of boldness with which he preached. And, and, and I want you to remember this boldness as we read through 1 Peter. Acts 2, 38 to 39 but Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There he is, calling on the crowds that had been shouting for Jesus' crucifixion, calling on them to repent and to believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. He preached boldly to the, San, to, to the San, Sanhedrin in Acts 4, 8-12, to, to 12, the same group that was responsible for Jesus' crucifixion, Peter boldly says, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for, uh, let's see, for, for benefit done, done to a sick man, this, this is after he heals him. Okay, let's see, and then skip, skip down. He talks about Jesus. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builder, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that was given, by, um, given among men by which we must be saved. There he is proclaiming that there's salvation in Christ alone. The boldness among those same people who were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus 50 or 60 or 70 days previously. Acts 5, verses 29 to 32 shows more of this boldness of Peter. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And that's interesting in this book where we're Peter's going to be talking about the responsibility we have to our authorities. Acts 5, 29 to 32, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So we see that boldness of Peter. And that same chapter describes how he was flogged for his continued proclamation of Christ. But then he goes away rejoicing, be considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. So think about that. When we read through 1 Peter and we hear about all the suffering that the church was going through, Peter had suffered too. Peter also counted a joy to be worthy to suffer for Christ. 
Peter was part of, on the cutting edge of God's plan to save the Gentiles. We see that in uh, Acts 10. God used him to preach the gospel to, to, to Cornelius, the Gentile. In Acts 11, Peter is defending how God had used the Gentiles, uh, how God had used him to bring the Gentiles to repentance. That's going to be important as we look at who 1 Peter wa- was written to. To go back a little bit to John 21, we also know about the end of Peter's life. John 21, 18 says, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Most commentators say that that is Jesus' prediction of the crucifixion of Peter. So here we see this picture of an emotional man but also a transformed man by a, a bold proclaimer of God's word, a man who was uh, accustomed to suffering, a man who was a faithful shepherd, a man who was used by God for the salvation of Gentiles, a man who was eagerly waiting the return of Christ, a man who knew that he would be crucified like his Savior had. This is the Peter who is writing that book. And so hopefully that those kinds of seeds there will influence you as you're reading through 1 Peter. As we learned in our uh, our second hour care group launch a couple week, weeks ago, we're going to be studying the church during second hour. If you are missing something to be reading for your daily Bible time, be reading through 1 Peter. Read it through again and again since we're not going through a specific book during care groups. Think and, and read through Acts 2. Hear how that same Peter is speaking now in the book of 1 Peter. So where was Peter when he wrote this? Well, the end of 1 Peter 5, verse 13, describes the church in in, in Babylon. And and Peter says, she who is in Babylon, describes the church. And we have to ask ourselves where Babylon is. But she who is in Babylon sends you greetings. Well, Babylon, the best in interpretation, really the only viable one, is Rome. That Peter is using a metaphor for Rome, though. Rome there. Peter is writing from Rome. So when was Peter writing from Rome? Scripture isn't clear, but we can make an educated guess about when he was writing. So it's really interesting that here we just finished through, through Philippians, which was written by Paul in Rome as as best as we can see, between 60 and 62 uh, AD, when Paul was imprisoned in Rome, waiting trial before Nero. Well, in Paul's epistles during that time, Paul never mentions Peter. Now, perhaps that wouldn't be completely strange, except when Paul's giving greetings from Rome, He talks about those who are among the circumcision who give greetings, and he includes Mark. We we see that in Colossians 4, verses 10 through 11. But he says, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. Surely he would have included Peter if Peter had been there in Rome at that time. Mark is there, but nothing is said about Peter. Well, in 1 Peter 5, 13... Peter, writing from Rome, sends Mark's greeting. So there's an overlap between the time that Paul and Peter were both in Rome, and Mark is that overlap. He was there for both men's ministry. But that kind of shows that that those ministries were not far apart. And so we don't know exactly when Paul got, I mean, when Peter got to Rome. It was probably sometime after Paul had had been released, had finished writing his prison epistles, sometime around that time. So that puts an early date of the writing of Mark around 62. Now, Peter doesn't mention in his letter the intense persecution that happens after portions of Rome were burned in AD 64. Rumor is is that Nero had himself been responsible for burning down a large portion of Rome. He loved building things, and so what better way to build something than to tear something down? Well, instead of getting blamed, though, Nero turned attention to Christians, blamed Christians, and after that, a serious persecution broke out against Christians in Rome. He ordered that they should be captured and killed. 
Some of those Christians were torn apart by dogs, church history tells us. Others were burnt alive as human torches. But Peter doesn't say anything about that intense persecution that was going on. And he didn't have to in writing 1 Peter, but it's likely, as he writes this book that is full of the suffering of the saints, would have maybe said, wow, things are really bad here. But he doesn't. And so it makes us think that that persecution hadn't broken out yet. That kind of leaves a window for the writing of 1 Peter between 62 and 64. If 2 Peter's written to the same audience, we had probably guessed that, that it would be earlier in that same period. So very close to the writing of, uh, of Philippians by Paul, except Paul wrote Philippians to Philippi in Greece, and we're going to see that Peter was writing to churches in Asia Minor. Just one last n- n- note here. The letter was likely carried by, by Silvanus, and we see that in 1 Peter 5.12. So that's a little bit about the author of 1 Peter. Uh, let's, let's, let's not talk about the audience of 1 Peter. The audience of 1 Peter. We see it in 1 Peter 1, 1. I mean, Colossians, not 1 Peter 1, 1. To those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. We've got a slide here of a map of Asia Minor. So if, if you recognize that, on the west side is Greece. The, in, in, in the center there is Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. It was bordered by three, by three seas. You had the Black Sea on the north, the Aegean Sea on the west, and, and the Mediterranean Sea on the south. Paul, Peter's writing to the area that's west of the Taurus Mountains and uh, north of there. Now, notice as you look... There are Roman provinces there. Right. We're not going to spend too much time on this, although I read a lot about this, and sometimes you wonder why, but I did. And um, there, uh, inside those red boundaries are Roman provinces. And we can see that Paul was, uh, that Peter was writing to provinces of Bithynia Pontus at the north, at, to, to Galatia in the center, and Cappadocia to the east, and Asia to the west. So those are Roman provinces. It's interesting, though, the order that Peter has this, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And if you follow that order on the map, uh, it seems intentional. Going from Pontus at the north to Galatia to the south, Cappadocia to the east, over to Asia to the west, and then back, back to Bithynia. It's not just how you would normally list them, and that's probably because that's the order that, that Silvanus went through the provinces at, as he took the letter to the various churches. It would be like our addressing a letter to the Bay Area, Nevada, Idaho, Arizona, and Southern California. If you know your geography really well, you notice that that's kind of weird, but that's pretty much how this is written here. Let's see. Now, let's talk about Asia Minor briefly. One commentator says that that area that Peter was addressing is about 129,000 square miles. It's a big number. In comparison, for all of you geography buffs, California is 163,000 square miles. Okay? So 129,000 square miles is the area he's writing to. California is 163,000 square miles. So just imagine writing a letter to the churches of California. And of course, there weren't that many churches then, but that's still a massive area. So this would include huge travel on, 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 on the part of Sylvanus. One commentator, Jobes, uh, write, writes about this area. The geographical areas addressed include a fantastic conglomeration of territories, coastal regions, mountain ranges, plateaus, lakes, and river systems. The inhabitants were even more diverse. They had different origins, ethnic roots, languages, customs, regions, and, and political histories. There, there was a substantial Jewish population in Asia Minor. Jews from Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia were present, at, present in Jerusalem at, at Pentecost. So when they talk about uh, when uh, Luke in Acts records all the different groups that heard uh, at Pentecost uh, Peter in their own language, 
includes people from these areas. So it's very interesting to think, to speculate, to hypothesize a little bit that some of those in those churches, Peter may have met at Pentecost, may have been those who were saved at Pentecost who had returned and planted churches in, 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 in the areas that they returned to. There was a great diversity in Asia Minor to the extent of Greek influence. So we saw on the map that Asia was on the west. It was closest to, to Rome. It was the most urban, had the most cities. It was the most Hellenized culture, but it was also the most comfortable with, 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 with worshiping the, the, the Roman emperor as one of the gods. That there in Western Asia is where cities like Ephesus and, and Colossae were located. Galatia to the east became an imperial province later in 25 BC. Uh, it's important though because uh, that area left much more of it was un, un, untouched from Roman rule. There was Celtic tribal lands. Pontus to the north had only four towns. Cappadocia to the east only had a couple. There the Cappadocian language was spoken into the fourth century. Okay, that might not be very interesting. For some of you, it is, and I appreciate that. For others of you, it's not very interesting. I'm, uh, I'm going to try, try to pull that together. It's really important when we think about this letter going to that area. It is a diverse area. Parts of it were very Roman, and parts of it were not. So here's a, another quote. It's a vast geographical area with small cities few and far between of a diversified population of indigenous peoples, Greek settlers, and Roman colonists. The residents practiced many religions, spoke several languages, and were never fully assimilated into the Greco-Roman culture, into the Greco-Roman culture. The problem of linguistic diversity would have been an obstacle to any evangelistic efforts of the indigenous peoples, since Greek and Latin are poorly attested in vast areas of Asia Minor, except among officials in the cities that have become Roman administrative centers. So I wanted to bring that out a little bit to kind of bring a fuller picture that this is kind of like the Wild West of the Roman Empire with towns that were far apart. And we're talking, again, nearly the size of California. This is a diverse group of churches. I think sometimes we, we read First Peter and we think of a small area with a few cities uh, together and that letter's getting, getting passed around. This is a massive area with different people groups, so that's just a, a little bit about the audience versus Peter. We, we also want to talk about what, what, whether the audience was Jewish or Gentile, because that, that influences our reading of the letter as well. Upon first reading, it's easy to assume that Peter wrote to a Jewish audience. He, Peter himself, uses language that was plucked from the Old Testament to describe Jews, to, to refer to Israel, like in 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a royal nation, a people for God's own possession. Anyone reading that in the Old Testament would say, he's talking about Israel here. He, Peter quotes from Leviticus and Isaiah, Psalms and Proverbs. He mentions the prophets and Abraham and Sarah and Noah. He even refers to his audience as we see in verse 1. And the New American Standard translates it as scattered, but the ESV has it better of the dispersion. So the dispersion was a technical term to the Jews who continued to live outside of the promised land so that they were either, either those who had been scattered since, but those from the exile who never returned and had set up their own, their own life and culture in various cities around that Middle Eastern world. They were known as the diaspora now. Well, Peter refers to them as that. So, so it's, and for a long time, it's an easy assumption to make. He's writing to a Jewish audience. But a closer look at 1 Peter reveals that the majority of the audience were Gentile. Listen to 1 Peter 1.14. Peter describes the former lusts which were yours in your, in your ignorance. Ignorance would have not been a way that... Peter would have referred to Jews. These Gentiles, their life before Christ had been marked 
by ignorance. They did not know God. They did not know his truth. They did not have his law. 1 Peter 1.18 describes a futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. Again, this would not be a way to talk to, to, to Jews, even if they were missing out on the true gospel and weren't in a right relationship with the Lord and were understanding a uh, uh, salvation by works, you still wouldn't say that it was a futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. That would be more true of a Gentile audience. Same thing in First Peter 4, verses 3 through 4. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of, sen- of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Again, those would not be sins characteristic of a Jewish audience. In all this, they, the Gentiles, are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and, and, they, and they malign you. They were surprised because the Gentiles who had become Christians were not doing those things anymore. The Jews were not typically doing those things. This is why when Peter says in 1 Peter 2.10, For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you had received mercy. Peter had used this this technical term of dispersion to refer to the people of God scattered throughout the world. So he uses a metaphor and describes them. Just as the Jews before had been scattered around the world, now you are scattered around the world. He's writing to a Gentile audience. It was a Gentile audience, the book shows, that was going through suffering for their commitment and their allegiance to Christ. We don't know how many churches Peter was writing to. We don't know how much he had heard about each of these churches' sufferings. But he had heard enough to, to write about their suffering. First Peter 1.6 describes him as being distressed by various trials, which may not be only suffering. It's various trials there. 1 Peter 2.12 describes that they were slandered as evildoers. 1 Peter 2.19, they were suffering unjustly. 1 Peter 3.14, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation. 1 Peter 3.16 describes them, the things in which you were slandered. 3.17, you suffer for what's doing what's right. 1 Peter 4.4, in all this, they, the, the, the Gentiles, are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. And they malign you. So they were being maligned. They were being intimidated. They were being slandered. 1 Peter 4.12 describes the the fiery ordeal they were going through. They were being reviled for the name of Christ. 4.16, they were suffering as Christians. They were experiencing the same kinds of sufferings as as the uh, saints throughout the world in 1 Peter 5.9. Now, as we look through all of those descriptions of suffering there, It was slandering, it was maligning, it was reviling. Probably the most most explicit is saying the fiery ordeal that they were going through. But there's no mention of death. There's There's no mention of execution. There's not even any mention of physical harm. Research suggests that that persecution of this time was not the official policy of Rome. Nero had not yet uh, made being a Christian a punishable offense. And even when he did, that didn't necessarily extend beyond Rome to the rest of the Roman Empire. I think sometimes we can read 1 Peter and think about people who who are hiding in caves and who are being killed. Probably not really what's going on at this time. There's, there's just not evidence for it. Instead, it's much more like the evidence, that, 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 uh, the kind of persecution that happens in Acts. It didn't happen in, in every city. It was local. It would happen for, for, for a period of time and then die down. Being a Christian wasn't illegal, but it wasn't popular. Thomas Schreiner writes, the Christian faith would be frowned upon because, and he quotes, it was an inferior upstart lacking an authentic ancient heritage. It was a new religion. 
Furthermore, Christianity's claim to sole possession of the truth violated an important tenet of Roman, Roman society. Christians were viewed as alarming because of their exclusivism, which is true today as well. Many people are okay with you believing what you want to believe until you say, no, this is the truth. No, Jesus is the only way to be made right with God. Going back to the quote here. Indeed, Christians were under suspicion because they engage in proselytism, a shocking novelty in the ancient world. So that just gives a little bit of the background of why Christians were persecuted. And we're going to see more from this book. Their lives were different. They were strangers. That, that leads us to our purpose of 1 Peter because of their allegiance to Christ, both in confession and action, the Christians in Asia Minor were not at home. So they, so they were suffering, but they were not at home. And 1 Peter 1.1 1, 1 describes them as, To those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. The lexicon describes that word there, reside as aliens, as staying for a while in a strange or foreign place. It describes someone who is sojourning, who is a temporary resident, a stranger. Now, of course, stranger can be kind of a, uh, an awkward way to translate that because you just think of someone being strange. The ESV ha ha has exiles, but that really doesn't work either uh, because it's not someone who's being forced away from their homeland into a different homeland. So maybe sojourner, which is an outdated word. I think even alien is a little strange as we have to explain that to our children. What is an alien? A sojourner, a stranger, a foreigner. Someone who wasn't a citizen, who wasn't at home, who had different customs and different values. In 1 Peter 1.17, Peter continues describing them as strangers. In 1 Peter 1.17, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. And that idea of their, their stay. In the ESV, it's translated again as exile, though a different Greek word. It's a state of being in a strange, a strange locality without being a citizen there. So to be a foreigner a expat maybe. First Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from, from fleshly lust. And there Peter uses both words, aliens and strangers. It's how Abraham described himself in Genesis 23.4. I'm a stranger and a sojourner uh, among you. It was how he described not yet being home in the, the promised land during his Canaan wanderings. He was living there, but it wasn't his final home. All who have been born again through the word of God are a new people. We are his people. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10 describes this largely Gentile audience using very Jewish language. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this is who the churches that Peter was writing to are. They are God's people. They are strangers. They are aliens. They are not at home in this country. They are strangers in a foreign land. They are waiting the return of the king. And this people of God in ancient Asia Minor needed to be encouraged to hope in the midst of their suffering. This First Peter is a book that is full of hope. It's full of longing for our return of Christ. Peter encourages them with the certainty of the future in 1 Peter 1.4. That they're going to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. In verse 13 of chapter 1, he encourages them with the return of Christ. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We do not fix our hope on any election. We fix our hope completely on the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 
describes at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Hold on in your suffering. Because at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. You're not at home here. The supremacy of Christ, Peter encourages them with in 1 Peter 3.22, describes Christ at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. All of this belongs to Christ the King. Peter encourages them. He encourages them that he, like them, is awaiting future glory. 1 Peter 5, 1 describes himself as a partaker also of the glory that is to, be, is to be revealed. Glory is coming. Christ is returning. He encourages them with the faithfulness of Christ in 1 Peter 5, 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Be humble as you go through the suffering. Be humble as your strangers in this strange land. Be humble as your aliens here. Because Christ will exalt you. As new people, the churches in Asia Minor needed to learn how to live in a way pleasing to their new king. 1 Peter 1.15, he calls them. To like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. And this is why they were different. They were to be a holy people. 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12, Peter urges them as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. This was about God's glory, their holy lifestyles. The book is full of how they are to relate to one another in the body of Christ, how they are to relate to the authorities in their life, how they are to relate to one another within marriage. 1 Peter 4.2 says, as, It's to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. You are a new people. So now you're going to live differently, no longer for your desires, no longer for your lust, but for God's will. This was what made them not at home. Because they were living to different rules, living for a different king. Thomas Schreiner summarizes the purpose of 1 Peter well. The purpose of the letter is to encourage believers to stand fast while they endure suffering and distress in the present evil age. So encourage them to stand fast. He continues, they are encouraged to persevere, knowing that a great reward will be theirs in the day of salvation. Such perseverance is exhibited by living a godly life, living as good citizens, model slaves, gentle wives, and understanding husbands. When believers live in such a way, they indicate that they are placing their hope in God rather than in the joys and comforts of this world. And I think that's something we're going to be challenged by as we go through 1 Peter, because it is so tempting to find our joy in the comforts of this world. Perhaps no verse better summarizes the purpose of 1 Peter than 1 Peter 5.12. I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now, we have to ask ourselves as we look at our last point at the timeliness of 1 Peter. And why is this a good book for Cornerstone Bible Church right now? And as I mentioned when I started, I think that one of the biggest challenges, and you may have felt it even as I read through all those references to suffering, is we feel that we're not suffering the way that we imagine that the audience was suffering. I think we have to be really careful with that. First of all, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We would find ourselves quickly unable to relate to all of God's word if we needed to have identical experiences. So this book is going to teach us in our experiences now. But I also know that we are going through some of the suffering that is described in this book. Now maybe you are not specifically right now in your day, but I know that many of you, when you first came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, that you had experienced this kind of suffering that they were going through. One commentator describes it as this. Because of their Christian faith, they were being marginalized by their, by their society, 
alienated in their relationships and threatened with not experiencing a loss of honor and, and socioeconomic standing and, po and possibly worse. I think many of us maybe are not yet experiencing a loss of socioeconomic standing. That may be true of some of you, though, as you are passed over for, for promotions in your workplaces because of what you've made known is true. But that is some of the experience you've suffered when you came to Christ. As you were maligned by both family and friends for your submission to Christ. For you no longer worshiping at the altar of their gods. No longer making success your number one goal in life. Many of you are experiencing this now. If, if you're in an environment... Where, where, where people are trying to get you to join in their sin, you experience some of the suffering that, that they were going through. Whether it's that having to say no at work because you refuse to uh, compromise on taxes or because you enforce the safety standards that the law says. Or maybe it's because you are in a public school or college where, where, where you, just, you just haven't told them, no, no, I don't want to go drinking. But you tell them why. It's because Jesus is my Lord and I belong to him. If that's what you're doing, I know you are maligned. It's what I went through in college. If you go to public high school, it's what you're going through. And maybe many of us would experience more of this kind of suffering. Just imagine your social media life. If you were honest what you believed about God's law, or I won't say honest if you were public. I'm not saying you're dishonest not to say anything, but if you were public with what you believed about God's righteousness, about his just punishment, about Christ being the only means of salvation, how many of your friends would unfollow you or, or hide you? Would you have any left? So this kind of suffering that they were going through, yes, it may not be the fiery ordeal, although some of you may have experienced that, but we're still going through suffering. But that being said, my, my real point is we cannot be going through that suffering and this book would still be important to us. Because if you have been born of God, if you have placed your hope in Jesus Christ alone, if he is your king, you are God's people and you are not at home. You are not at home here, and we need to learn to live according to a completely different set of rules. We need to learn to live how he tells us to. What should our relationships be like as determined by God's word? It doesn't matter what church culture is. What does God's word say our relationships should be like? What does God's word say our marriages should be like? What does God's word say our response to authority should be like? The purpose of our being this chosen race, this royal priesthood, this holy nation, this people for God's own possession, is that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what he tells them to be ready to do. So 1 Peter is going to teach us how to live as sojourners, how to live as strangers, how to live as citizens of heaven, how to anchor our hope in the future with Christ and not in some kind of political change. So we're going to be asking ourselves some questions as we go through 1 Peter. Questions like these. Am I a sojourner or have I become at home in the world? Is your home being a Republican? Is that your home? Is it being a Democrat? Is that your home? Are you, are you at home in a political system? Is that your home? Are you at home because you're American? Are you at home because of a certain socioeconomic status? Are you at home because of a certain ethnicity? Am I a sojourner or have I become at home in this world? Am I appropriately uncomfortable here or inappropriately comfortable? We should not be at home in our own skin, to use a phrase. Are you appropriately uncomfortable or inappropriately comfortable? Has my obedience to Christ made me distinct from the world? 
This is not a condemning question to ask. The answer should be yes. I'm distinguishable in all kinds of ways. Is my hope singly set, only set on the grace to be brought to me at the revelation of Jesus Christ? From verse, chapter 1, verse 13. Is that my hope? Is that what I'm longing for? Is that the next big thing? Or is it another promotion, another neighborhood, another school district, another career advancement, another step for our kids? Or is our hope set on the grace to be brought to me in the revelation of Jesus Christ? Am I living holy or being conformed to my former lust? We should not be at home because we're holy people. A Christian will never be at home in this world. He will be out of place in his own country. So 1 Peter is going to help us learn how to live as strangers, submitted to Christ's lordship, awaiting his return, proclaiming his excellencies, standing firm in his grace. Let's pray. Now, Father, I do thank you uh, for the patience of your people this, this morning. I know that we covered a lot. I pray that you would use this. Um, I know I learned a lot, and I wanted them to, too. This background, this background of the experience of Peter, such an imperfect but bold and transformed man, a persecuted man, a man who loved seeing Gentiles saved and could even call them by terms appropriate to Israel. Lord, I pray that that background of his life would inform our reading of this book. I pray, Father, that our understanding more about Asia Minor and even a little bit, I, I wish we could go back in time and see how they lived and see where they lived and exactly what cities were like and how diverse their bodies were. There's so much we don't know, Lord. There's so much we have to guess. We don't know if this letter needed to be translated for some. There's so much we don't know, Lord, but I pray that our understanding of Asia Minor a little bit better would help us um, and maybe protect us from misconceptions about this book, about, pre, uh, about preconceptions even. Our understanding of some of the suffering that they were going through would maybe make it easier for us to identify with ourselves and even ask ourselves whether we should be suffering more. I pray, Father, that you would uh, be using this book as a source of comfort for those who are out of place. Father, your, your word says that those who live godly lives are going to be persecuted. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be asking ourselves hard questions. I see, think that this is appropriate in your plan, in your sovereign plan, that we go through this book after Philippians, uh, because that was a book that overflowed with proclaiming Christ and the opposition for the gospel. And here we're in another book where we're opposed for our, 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 our holy lives, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would help us to be a people who are not at home here, Lord, I'm not asking for, for persecution or suffering, but that we would not be at home, not comfortable with this world's standards or this world's way of living, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would protect us from confusion about where our true home is, about where our new identity is, Lord, that our identity would be in our Lord Jesus and, and, and our hope would be in his return. I pray, Father, that you would... Uh, help us to persevere in our sufferings. I pray, Father, that we'd be transformed to live holy, holy lives. I pray, Father, that you would be uh, helping us to be lights in the areas where we live, Lord. pray, Father, that you would do much work in our hearts as we launch in this study of First Peter. In Jesus' name, amen.